Today's first reading should leave us with a question mark. After all, we teach that and we believe that God is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. He's omnipresent. He is all places outside of time. And uh, he is omnipotent, all-powerful. And yet, in today's first reading, I must go to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if the cry out against them is, is as serious as I hear it is. It's like he doesn't know, right? Well, I think uh, what is going on is uh, trying to make or trying to tell a story in which God is made almost too human, but that isn't the point that God is too human, that God doesn't know, but rather God's desire to have Abraham intercede for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and inviting him to do this. And after all, we hear this. As Abraham says, you know, if I, if I could be so kind to ask, you wouldn't destroy for 50. And then, well, who am I? You know, I'm just dust and ashes. Who am I to ask? But what if there's five less? And on and on. The problem, by the way, isn't that Abraham was uh, bargaining with God. It was He overestimated how many good people would be found in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'll just leave it at this, it wasn't a lot, though his name was Lot. It was Lot and his family. That was it. And we know the story, of course, that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, wiped them off the face of the map, in fact, uh, so much so that no one really knows for sure where they were. Now, lately, in the last five, ten years, there's an excavation in uh, south of the Dead Sea that seems to line up with uh, one of the towns most likely Sodom, that uh, archaeologists who are working there say it's like it survived almost a nuclear blast. It was such level destruction immediately. It burned at such a high heat that there's no explanation of how this happened. So just get your ducks in a row if if we live in a land as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Although I've said it recently, uh, you know, if if the Lord doesn't hold us to... uh, correction, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah a big, big apology. But it was that prayer that Abraham did. And and throughout the Old Testament, especially, we see a number of people doing this. Abraham does it. We have uh, Moses, if you remember, in the, the whole episode, as he's up receiving the Ten Commandments, they throw, Aaron says, well, we threw our gold in and I'll pop this golden bowl. And, of course, Moses has no time for this. And God says, well, I'm going to destroy it. I'll raise up a nation from you. And Moses stands in the breach, it says. And he intercedes with him, with God, and reminds him, you're a God of mercy. And what are people going to say, uh, especially in Egypt? He led them out of Egypt only to destroy them. God does not change his mind. God knows his plan. God knows and sees all time in one, we can't even talk about it, how he sees it, because to, to say one eternal now is, suggests he's, he's in time, which he's not. He sees and knows everything. And sometimes I think he desires us to pray that our prayer does not change him, because he cannot change, but rather It's what we need to do in order for him to enact the plan that he's had from the beginning. 
Sometimes we think that prayer is almost a transactional thing. I've used this image before. Sometimes we we think prayer is like a vending machine. If I put in my my five minutes, you know, God is going to give me what I want. If I say these five Our Fathers and five Hail Marys, then that that means something more. And and to a certain extent, the church has uh, allowed that with uh, certain um, practices, such as indulgences. If we understand indulgence in the right way, we see that it's not transactional. It's not if we just simply pray these prayers, we get this thing, but rather if we say these prayers, it shows that we're we're working towards desiring what God wants for us, desires for us, and it's not transactional. And prayer is a mysterious thing because, yes, we have all these rope prayers, and of course when the church has, uh, in the midst of her liturgies, has prayer upon prayer upon prayer, and we want to do things right, but... The mystery of prayer is that it's different for each one of us. Because prayer is not transactional, but rather relational. It is how we relate to God the Father. And we see that even in today's first reading, as Abraham realizes who he is. I'm just dust and ashes, arguing with my Creator. And so the apostles, the disciples, ask the Lord to teach them to pray. And St. Luke's Gospel is very clear that they're in a certain place, and I get frustrated, I have to admit, when St. Luke does this, praying in a certain place, but where? Well, according to tradition, it was a certain place, a cave on the Mount of Olives that overlooks the Temple Mount, the Kidron Valleys in between. There is a cave there that uh, Jesus and the disciples would often go to, and he would pray there. That cave later became a church, Constantine's mother, Helena, uh, built a church on that site. And later, a monastery was built around it, and it is known as the Church of Paternoster, the, the Church of the Our Father. If you ever get the privilege of going to Jerusalem, it's one of the most quiet, peaceful, prayerful places. And as you walk around the, the former cloister, they've moved but you walk around, you see the Our Father in a hundred and some different languages and tile. It's a beautiful place, but it's a certain place. But that's irrelevant to St. Luke. It's not where, but what. He teaches them to pray. And we have here, of course, a shortened version of the Our Father, perhaps shortened because, uh, for whatever reason. But notice how it begins, and even the Our Father begins. It begins with that relationship. And it's rather radical, the relationship that Jesus invites us to have with God. After all, we are the only religion that calls God Father. That we would dare to call God Father. That's intimacy. God calls us to this intimacy. And yet, we remember, hallowed be your name. And we ask him for his kingdom to come. And while we don't have it, thy will be done here. That's what St. Luke's recording allows us to think. May I be a part of making that kingdom come. And we admit that we need things. We need our daily bread, but also that we need forgiveness of our sins. With the condition that we forgive those who sin against us. So often when we pray, we might pray almost too materialistic. 
In a certain sense, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, because we know that God does provide our daily bread. But sometimes when we pray, we, we pray for things that aren't really needs, they're wants. I, a number of years ago, heard a story of a man who really, in a way, stopped praying because when he was young, he asked for a red bike. And he kept asking and asking and asking. He had that very relational kind of, un- or a transactional understanding of prayer. And when he finally got it, he went out and he rode it and very, uh, the very next day got hit by a car. He stopped praying because he thought God had somehow taken that away from him. That God was punishing him for praying or whatever it was. But that's not quite the case. And we hear it too in the, uh, if we turn on the TV, especially Sunday mornings, not that I am available a whole lot of Sunday mornings, but we hear it in a lot of preaching that's on TV or radio. These health and wealth preachers, if you give me your money, you will have blessings. If you do this certain thing, you will be blessed beyond measure. You will have everything you need. That isn't necessarily what we believe. See, there's something that we forget too often. God created us with bodies, yes. But we're created for more than material. God also created us with souls. That we're created for the immaterial, the spiritual. And God's blessings, more times than not, are spiritual. In fact, St. Luke, in, in the end of this gospel reading, if, if you who are wicked give good things to your children, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the greatest gift. The presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity in us, is the greatest gift that we can receive. And notice that gift of the Holy Spirit is given to us for relationship. As St. Paul would say, that the Spirit groans within us with words inexpressible because we do not know how we pray, how to pray otherwise. The Spirit in us cries, Abba, Father. That this gift of prayer is about that relationship. But Jesus also instructs us in this parable I don't know about you, but being woken up at midnight, being asked for bread, would be the most miserable thing I can think of. Most of us don't like being woken up in the middle of the night, and, and here this man is, and he's, he hears this knocking of this neighbor, and, and, and I need three loaves of bread. We're not talking the wonder, wonder bread loaves, we're talking three little loaves that would have fed two or three people. So if you want to imagine, I need a loaf of bread, that might be appropriate. Look, the door is locked. It's not so easy to get up out of bed and unlock that door and give you what I have. Give it. I'm going to keep knocking until you give it to me. And the, the word that we hear, have here is, he will not get up because of their, their friendship, but rather get up because of his persistence. And that word for persistence is only used in St. Luke, the Greek word, is only used once. And uh, I have to admit, I, as I read it, I, I kind of, wow. It's like I read it for the first time this week. And that word for persistence literally means shamelessness. To keep 
shamelessly knocking on the door. And what does that look like? Well, it means with boldness, to do whatever it takes, that I'm going to get down on my hands and knees, I'm going to beg shamelessly to the Lord who gives all good things. I don't know about you, but in my prayer, I haven't quite prayed shamelessly. Oh Lord, if it's your will, yes, we want to pray with God's will, but if we know that God wants and desires to give us everything that we need to thrive spiritually, we don't have to worry about it being in God's will. In fact, a few years ago, there was a book written, I forget the author's name, but it was titled something like, Ten Prayers God Always Says Yes To. And I thought, well, that's rather bold. And I paged through the book, I realized, yeah, there's a truth here. The prayers God always says yes to are, Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to know you. Help me to love you. Help me to serve you. Help me to grow in holiness. Those are the prayers God cannot refuse. Oh, sometimes it takes a while because of our own pride, our own arrogance, our own shame that gets in the way. But God does say yes to those kind of prayers because he wants us and desires us to thrive. He wants us to have a relationship with him. That relationship comes and starts in prayer. And again, because of that relationship, it's different for each of us. Some of us might find praying the rosary very easy, that that's a way to enter into the mystery of Jesus Christ and meditate on his life and death and resurrection. For other people, that might be a miserable experience. And to a certain extent, that's okay. Some might find that that uh, praying the novena, a uh, novena is a beautiful way. Others might find they are instantly, instantly lost in their prayer, lost in the meditation of God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. It's not how we pray, but that we pray that's most important. It doesn't matter how long either, but to rather to catch ourselves praying throughout the day. The Lord tells us to pray always. He tells us to pray always. And how can we do that? Well, it means seeking that relationship in everything we do. As we heard last week, prayer and work, that's what's most important. To pray and to do what God calls us to do. This day we would add when we pray, to pray shamelessly, boldly, ask for what we need to spiritually thrive, knowing that God meets our daily need.